Thank you, Elizabeth. Mary's song, and I got to hear it twice. Dino and Elizabeth uh, did some traveling with us. Uh, some of you traveled uh, from the church here. We uh, did a number of trips uh, in Europe and elsewhere. And whenever we were in a cathedral, the group would prevail upon Elizabeth to test the acoustics out. And she would indulge us, and uh, we, we would get to hear sublime music in some of the great cathedrals of uh, the world. So thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, good to be here. I always feel like I'm coming home, see so many of you and familiar faces. And what is so exciting is so many new faces uh, at Free Christian Church, which is a sign of new life and growth. And we're so, uh, I'm so thankful for that. And uh, JP is so gracious in inviting me to take part in, especially on a Sunday like this, which is uh, one of the biggies, uh, New Year's, uh, not New Year's. What is, what is, what is this? <laughs> Can anybody say senility? <laughs> not yet, not yet. Anyway, um, John is over in North Andover preaching there. He doesn't have the Sunday off, so uh, don't worry about that. What's that? Fear not. That's right. Uh, but it's just great to be here. A lot of folks are not going to be home at Christmas. You think of all of the servicemen and women around the globe who are uh, deployed in far-off places who will not get to be home. And if you've ever spent a Christmas away from home, I only had to spend one in my whole life. It is not a happy thing. So we pray for them, and if some of you are in contact with them, certainly you uh, reach out to them. If you think about the first Christmas, nobody was home, right? The holiday that brings us home, because all other holidays you want to be away. Easter, you want to be in Florida, right? And uh, then Fourth uh, of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, you want, in Maine, you want to be up to camp. It's one, it's one word, up to camp. And uh, everybody has a camp. And so we are at camp, so, and we're in vacation land, so where do we go? We don't want to go anywhere. We're home. But everybody goes, and here you go on the Cape, you go to Hampton, whatever. Everybody goes away every other holiday. You don't want to be at home except at Christmas. That's the one time you have to be home, and there's no place like home. So hopefully you'll all be home or gathered with your loved ones in their home. But that first Christmas, no one was home. Interesting. Kind of ironic, the holiday that brings us home had none of them home. Mary and Joseph, they weren't home. They were 80 miles south from Nazareth down in Bethlehem. Uh, the shepherds, they were working the night shift. If you ever worked the night shift, especially around the holidays, kind of lonely, kind of quiet. And they were working the night shift. They weren't home. The wise men, they'd traveled, the Magi, they traveled, we think, from Iran. Scholars think all the way from Iran. About six, 700 miles. They'd traveled. They weren't home. And in a sense that is really beyond fathoming fully, Jesus wasn't home because he had divested himself of his divine glory, not his divine nature, but the glory, and had descended to our realms on, uh, on that uh, Christmas day. So um, I want us to think, we're going to reflect on the song, Mary's song, that Elizabeth sang for us, just a, a small section of it. But I want us to think about the whole narrative and the whole story of the incarnation, the coming of God in flesh. But we're going to look at it from Mary's perspective, and that's what this text does. But before we start, let me uh, pray for you, and let me pray for me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. 
And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A uh, very simple outline this morning, just three parts. So what else is new, right? Three parts. In this text we're going to look at, there is an amazing announcement. There's also an amazing assignment. And then finally, there is an amazing acceptance. And that's how this will unfold. Think about the amazing announcement. The angel announces to Mary that she is going to bear God's son. No one could have seen that coming. The prophets had been faithful. God, by his spirit, had revealed to them that there would be a Messiah, uh, a Christ, because that's the Greek word for Messiah, Hebrew word, that there would be an anointed one coming from God. Zechariah saw him as a Davidic king, a, a powerful military ruler who would free Israel finally of the yoke of foreign oppression at that point, Rome. Daniel saw him as the uh, supernatural son of man, the supernatural figure, mysterious, uh, yet somehow human, but it really is still very shrouded in mystery in the prophet Daniel. Uh, Isaiah saw him as the suffering servant, which made no sense because the one thing that the Messiah would not do would be suffer. He would inflict suffering on his enemies, on Israel's enemies, on God's enemies. He wouldn't suffer. And so that was the most confusing of all. And so here are all that, that somehow by his suffering, the Messiah would save and redeem and heal. By his wounds, we would be healed. And so those are the incomplete pictures that come down through the, these human instruments, God speaking through them. But there comes a time when it's almost as though God said, what I want to say, what I want my people and the whole world to understand of my love is so enormous that I can no longer send human instruments to describe it. They can't do it. I must go myself. And he did in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the most complete, perfect manifestation of God that we have. You know, if you think about it, what we know of God from the Old Testament scriptures is, is fairly limited. I mean, it's there, but it's fairly limited because God's revelation is progressive. It unfolded. It was not complete then. In Jesus, we have the most complete, perfect, full demonstration of who God is. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Look at his life, look at his ministry, look at his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Look at the supernatural life given to him by the Father and raising him back to life. And so we look to Jesus as the picture that we need because it wasn't enough with the prophets. And so this is that announcement. And God coming, if you think about it, he had to come in a person. Joan Osborne saying, what if God were one of us? Well, he did become one of us, God in, God in a bond, you might say taking on human form, because we needed to know that he understands us. Obviously, God understands us. He's infinite. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But we need to know that he understands us. And the only way we are sure, are sure, assured that he really knows what we're going through at any point in life is that he also went through it. That's empathy. I mean, that's sympathy. There's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is when, say, a friend of yours loses their mother in death, and you call them, and you reach out to them, and you tell them how sorry you are, and you try to console them. But the fact is, they, they know, because your mother's alive and well, they know that you really don't know what it is. And they're grateful, but you don't really know what it's like 
because you haven't lost your mom. That's empathy. And we all face situations like that that we have not experienced. And we do the best we can. But the person going through it realizes they're going through it alone. Then your mother gets sick and dies. And then you call them. And they know that you know. That's sympathy. We need to know that God is not just empathetic to us from afar, but that he, he and the scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are. And that's helpful because we're tempted. We're tempted in different ways. Men and women, very different ways. You know, I joke, uh, Kathy loves to shop. And I love to have her shop. Just don't ask me to do it too. And, uh, you know, to know that Jesus experienced temptation without sin, the Bible's very clear, helps me know that I'm not alone. That he knows, he knows. And he was tested in every way like we are, ultimately in death, will be tested in death. Our ultimate test. But to know that he knows is so helpful for us as we journey in this life. And not only that, but he came as a person. It wasn't revealed a set of principles or force, some kind of blind cosmic force. No, he came as a person because all of our real problems are personal, if you think about it. We have problems with cars and computers and phones, but those are all replaceable. Those are all fixable. They're annoying, but they don't keep us awake at night typically. They don't cause us anxiety and they don't cause us depression and sorrow in broken hearts. It's relationships, it's persons. It's our relationship with other people. It's our relationship with ourselves. It's our relationship with God that we, we struggle with, all these things. And so we needed a person to come, and, and that person came as, as Jesus, God in human form, so that our personal problems could be healed, they could be redeemed, that a person could enter into them as a mediator, more powerful and, and, and infinitely wise be able to help us resolve them. We also needed a savior because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot confer forgiveness on ourselves, Bonhoeffer said. We need someone to confer forgiveness on us. And so it was so important that we understand and we do that this baby of Christmas that we all love, little children love to know and see the baby Jesus. And people like, you know, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, Will Ferrell. He, need, you know, he loved the baby Jesus. It's a silly scene if you remember it. Funny movie. Not a, you know, not a great movie. Don't, don't knock yourself out. But anyway. Um, but he just worshipped the baby Jesus. That's all he could get past. But that baby Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew up and that sweet little infant body was pierced with a spear. Those tender little infant hands that are so... Um, you know, mystifying and, and so uh, wondrous as we look at tiny hands and fingernails formed perfectly. They were pierced. And those little feet, those chubby little feet, the same, carried across up a hill. And that sweet infant mouth cried the ultimate cry of dereliction, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have I been totally abandoned? And that's why he was born, he was born to die. And he died for us because we cannot save ourselves. We needed a savior and a sacrifice so strong that the whole world could be redeemed and that there would be never any doubt that his grace and his love is greater than my failing. And that's so helpful. That was the amazing announcement that was given to this little girl and through her 
to the whole world and to us today. Not only this amazing announcement, this amazing assignment, and we see that in uh, verses 32. He will be called great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This incredible assignment given to Mary. And this is where the story really takes, I think, an amazing turn. Because here's the God of the whole universe vesting, investing rather, this little Jewish girl with the biggest assignment ever given to a human being to bear the Son of God. Um, you know, you have to think about, she was probably a teenager. We know enough about culture back then, and certainly it's reflected in third world culture today. Uh, so often in third world countries, girls are given off, sold off to ma in marriage when, at the onset of puberty. So maybe as young as 13 years old, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that range, this little girl was, was pledged to Joseph. And God chooses this little girl to carry out the greatest assignment ever given to a human being. I mean, that's, to me, that's mind-boggling. Um, no more vulnerable vessel than, than this little girl, if you think about it. Um, you know, our, our culture uh, honors teenagers and children. Most cultures still don't. Many cultures in the world don't. Uh, little girls are still trafficked in a horrible way. And this church, in the past, has been involved in that incredible ministry. And even in that culture, little girls were the least valuable member of society. They were chattel. They could be, as I said, sold off, sold into slavery, pay off family debt, whatever. Even, even in uh, Israel. And, and, and God gives this little girl that assignment. Now, uh, and in doing so, if you think about it, honors and dignifies childhood, especially um, female childhood, female adolescence, in, in, in a way that has never happened before or since. The most significant human assignment ever given, you can't think of a, a more important one, was given to a little girl, not to someone important. Not to someone strong, not to someone famous. Now, uh, we, we, at one time, we raised three girls, and at one time, we had three teenage daughters at the same time. There was a period of time when they, they all kind of overlapped. And they were great kids. I mean, I, I look back, and of course, you know, there were headaches here and there, but I, I look back, and they were great kids and all. But there were times when the hysteria, you know, the drama kind of rose pretty high, and uh, cooler heads had to prevail. And meaning their mom and me. And, uh, you know, if I were God, and I've told you this before, I would not have done it that way. <laughs> would, you, would you have said, I'm, I'm counting on this little girl to carry out the most important thing that has ever been done, the redemption of the world? I don't think I would have done it that way. I, I would have, you know, I would have looked around, and I've jokingly said this before, I would have looked around for a nice 35-year-old virgin. Someone responsible, hardworking, 
and very reliable, very dependable, because this is a major, this is a serious task that we're trusting here from a good background with a good job, you know, a steady income and a future. You want someone like that. This is not something, this is bigger than picking your cabinet, let me tell you. You know, that's peanuts compared to this. I mean, we wouldn't have done it God's way. But this is God's method of operation. Not always how he's worked. In fact, Paul says God chooses the weak and the foolish things, people, of the world in order to shame the powerful and the wise so that you never are mistaken that this was human accomplishment. You'll never wonder, did this person do this or did God do it? No. The vessel is going to be so flawed, so weak, that you're going to know God did this. God did this. And Paul says, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. And, and, and so you think about the history of, of, of Scripture. Paul chooses, I mean, God chooses Moses. Moses stammered. He had some kind of a speech impediment. And yet it's Moses who's going to deliver the word of God for Israel. Didn't seem to bother God. He's going to get the job done. And then you think of David, David who writes these sublime songs, the Psalms. We still sing them. So many of the praise songs, 3,000 years later. And those are the real golden oldies, right? 3,000 years, we still sing them. And yet David was this violent man. Shed blood, shed innocent blood, took another man's wife, had the man killed. Dark, dark stain on the pages of Scripture and on his soul. He paid a terrible price for it in his own family. But God redeemed him, forgave him. And God used him. And then you think of the New Testament, Peter, this strong, forceful individual. That, but, but in this moment of truth, that time when you hope, if you ever face it, you will demonstrate moral courage. That moment when Jesus is being arrested, Peter turns tail and runs. It has to live with that. And yet God redeems him. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And then Paul, Scripture says, breathing, breathing with hatred. This radical, this fanatical Jew who tracked down the Christians to see them killed and put in prison. To stamp out this new sect, this heresy. And yet God transforms him. And Paul, Saul becomes Paul and writes half the New Testament. But for the rest of his life, is so keenly aware of who he really is and who he was, a sinner redeemed by Christ. And so God seems to always work this way, and he uses us. And Paul takes it a step further. In 2 Corinthians, he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And it seems like a, kind of a conundrum to say that. What he's saying is, and he, and he goes on to say there, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. We hide our weaknesses because we're afraid if people see us as we really are, they're going to lose confidence in us. They're going to look down on us. They're going to be shocked. They're going to be surprised. They're going to be disappointed. They're not going to listen to us. And so we hide our weaknesses. Now, to a certain extent, you have to. I don't think you'd want JP standing up here telling you about all of his, how you know, Paul says, I'm anxious, I, I, don't, I can't sleep. He says, I, I, I'm, uh, I have fears that I'm battling. 
I think you want JP saying that. You're going to say, oh, thanks a lot, John. Can you just keep that to yourself a little bit? But when we know who we really are, and we are in touch with our flaws, we're not proud of them, but we don't try to deny them. It's who we are. Then there's room for God to work. So when I'm weak, he's strong. And so when he's strong, I'm strong. I think probably AA illustrates this better than anybody. And this church has a great AA ministry. And I'm so, so glad. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful, life-changing ministry. And often people have to get sober before they can find Christ. In fact, usually they do. But in AA, you have to get to that point where you say, I'm weak. I can't, I can't help this. I can't help myself. I need help. And then there's room for God to work through AA. So in our weakness, we open up our lives so that God can work. And we, when we are so confident in God's grace, then I don't have to hide those weaknesses. I can be real. I can be transparent because I know it's not me. It's him. It's only when I'm not that confident. And I think I've got to earn it. And I've got to deserve it. That I want to hide from you who I really am. Here's this amazing assignment given given to this little girl. And then finally, we see this amazing acceptance of that assignment. And I'll just read some verses there. Mary says, how will this be, she asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of the Most High. And then she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Here you have two incredible statements by Mary. How can this be? And may it be. How do you go from how can this be to may it be? There's a huge gap there. And that's the acceptance of this assignment. I now on the on the face of it, what she's asking is, how is this going to happen? You know, I'm a virgin. How am I going to become pregnant? Kind of a technical question. But in the scripture is always very discreet, doesn't get into detail, just tells us what we need to know because we couldn't understand it anyway. And, but I think there's more than just the sort of mechanics, how's this gonna happen? I think she's also asking, um, why? How can this be happening to me? Because it would not have been good news at first, and the Bible is, is necessarily compressed. Everything is shortened. You couldn't include everything. You have 15 centuries of Bible history compressed into one collection. And so I believe the process of her being able to go from hearing this announcement to being able to accept it took some time. It does for us. This would not have been good news. In that culture, for a young woman to be pregnant out of marriage, out of wedlock, the first thing that would happen is her, her betrothed would end the relationship. And we know from Matthew's account that Joseph planned to do that. He was going to do it privately and quietly, not to bring shame on her because the scripture says he was a righteous man. And then the angel has to intervene and tell him not to do that. So that'd be the first thing. She'd lose her marriage. The second thing is her family would disown her. And we only need to see the parallel in, in Middle Eastern cultures, many Middle Eastern cultures. Families disown. In, in some cases, they are killed, honor killings, because they bring dishonor on the family in a case like this. Uh, she wouldn't have been killed, although the Jewish law did prescribe it, because the Romans controlled that. They said, no, we control who dies, who lives. So she wouldn't have been killed, but she would have been disowned. She would have been put out of the synagogue. She would have been shunned by society. She would have been an outcast, kind of like the woman at the well. And 
and she would have paid for this the rest of her life. She would have had to raise her, her child as a beggar, perhaps, possibly as a prostitute. Someone might take her in as another wife. We don't know. But it was not happy. This is not good news. This is not good news. And uh, she knew that. And, and so how can this be? How can this be happening to me? It, you know, we, we say the same thing. We can, we can relate to this. You know, your, your boss calls you into your office and says, we no longer need your services. Clean out your desk. The security will usher you to your car. I think, what? I thought things were going well. I thought I was doing a good job. How could this be? We, we, we see we get medical reports. Doctor says, uh, I need to talk to you about the test results. The blood work came back. You got some problems. We need to talk about this. What? How can this be? I feel great. Well, you have a problem. We see it sadly in marriages, relationships. Husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. I've decided to end the relationship. I don't love you, and uh, I don't want to be with you anymore. What? How can this be? I thought things were going well. We're blindsided. I have a friend who's a professor at Gordon-Conwell, uh, getting close to retirement age, um, big job there, and he, he said we were, he and his wife, the family was growing there, said we were so looking forward to cutting back, not retiring, but scaling back, writing, traveling, quiet evenings at home, after this life of very, very full, full life, full work. And then our daughter was no longer able to care for her two-year-old son. And so we had to take full and permanent custody of our two-year-old grandson. And so every night now, as he said, is bath, bed, and beyond. <laughs> Only he didn't laugh. Not, he said, it's not what we planned. It's what we've been dealt. This is the hand we've been dealt. And we've accepted it, and we trust God has put it here and given it to us, but it's not what we wanted. And that's where Mary was, I've got to believe. And, I, and that's where we are sometimes. This is not what I wanted. It's not, it wasn't in my plan. God helped me to deal with the cards, the hand that I've been dealt. Help me to accept this. It's not in my plan. How do you go from how can it be where Mary says, may it be, as you've said. I accept it. All right. I accept it. Well, you have to enroll in the school of Gethsemane. Gethsemane was that garden on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem where Jesus spent his last night before the cross. And he prayed. And evidently, it's, it's a really... Um, mysterious and utterly profound conversation that's going on between Jesus and his heavenly father. He prays three times that, that he not have to go to the cross. And, and as you think about that, evidently there's, and he prays that if it's not God's will, that, that he be allowed some other route. And we do the same thing. We try to bargain with God. And, and in some way that I can't explain to you, and I don't think anybody can, there was this, this gap between the will of the Father and the understanding of the Son. God the Son 
And yet there's confusion about what God's will is. And he wants not to have to go through with it. Who would? And, and there's this dialogue that takes place. And that's the beginning of the school of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. We, we enter into a dialogue, and Mary did. She's wondering, how's this going to happen? And it says she was terrified by the announcement of the angel. And she's talking back to the angel, which is the voice of God. And she's not discouraged from doing that. And Jesus, God incarnate, is engaging this, this conversation. And we do too, every single day. If you think about it, our will does battle with God's will over little things. And we feel that tug back and forth. And we pray, thy will be done, not my will, which is what Jesus ultimately prayed in the garden. And, and here's this dialogue going on between us and the God of the universe, our maker, about what his will is and what we should be doing. And, and that's the first step. And then there comes a dying, and in Jesus' case, it was dying. It was on the cross. For us, it's a death of our plans, of our hopes, our will, our purpose, our dreams. And dreams die hard, don't they? And we finally surrender them. And it feels like a death because it is. It's a dying. And if you think of the stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified in that, that groundbreaking work many years ago of death and dying, you know, there's, there's uh, the, the first one, which is just denial. And then there's anger. We don't want to accept this. And then there's bargaining. We try to bargain and say, this can't be happening. It's, there's got to be something, uh, another way here. And then there's depression when you realize the dream is lost. Because depression is often associated with loss, very often, with something that is lost forever. And then finally, the last stage, she says, is acceptance. How do we get there? Well, there's a dying, there's the bargaining, and then there's the dying of our dream. But it's not a death in the ultimate sense, because it's only when our dream dies that God's dream can be born in us. And then finally, there is acceptance. And with the acceptance comes joy. And that's what she sings and what Elizabeth sang. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because you get to the point where you realize that this is all for your good in some way, and joy only comes about through that. We experienced this. The, we left two, four years ago from Free Church and moved to Maine to our home up there, which we love. No traffic in Maine. We love it. No parking problems. And uh, I took a little church, and I thought that, and I know it was God's call. God called me to pastor that little church. But it was an unmitigated disaster. It was a very, very difficult year, a very painful year. And uh, I got blood pressure for the first, high blood pressure first time in my life. Had to go to a massage therapist, my neck, just the tension. Our leadership, Kathy and I poured ourselves into that church for a year. Our leadership was rejected and we, we, and we were rejected. And uh, I resigned. And I'm still processing some of the hurt and the anger. Mostly I'm over it, but it was, it was not how things were supposed to happen. And yet they did happen that way. I'm rejoicing now because what I'm doing now, part-time, I love it. 
I'm coaching pastors who are in exactly that kind of situation. And we're, we're working either directly or indirectly with about 70 pastors across New England from northern Maine to southern Connecticut. And now I'm sympathetic. I know what they're going through. I can say, been there, done that. And I've got a wisdom around it. God had to allow me to go through that, to have anything of value to give these guys. And they need help. The church in New England needs help. Pray. Um, how do we get to joy? One final story to kind of wrap it all up and then we're done. Uh, I said we have three daughters. They all, they're all married. They all got married kind of out of order. The youngest one got married first, and then a short time later, the middle one got married. And then last of all, our oldest daughter got married. And, um, and there was a period of several years there where all her friends were getting married, her sisters were married, and she was great. But I know there were times when it had to be hard, obviously. She had had some relationships that didn't work out. We all do. And, uh, and so she was being careful. And I was getting a little concerned. You know, dads worry about their daughters. They don't worry about their sons. Sons, you know, you just, they get to be eight years old, boys, and, and they're living on their own somewhere, and you, you, you don't see them again until they're about 30, and then they come home with a family. Am I right? <laughs> and, uh, but girls, you worry about. And, and so I remember we were, we were skiing several years ago. We were skiing. The, at the end of the day, we're riding home. And sometimes in a car, you can have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation because you're both looking ahead, you know, talk to somebody in the front seat. And so I, I decided to broach the subject. I, I said, uh, you meeting anyone? And, uh, and I have her permission to tell this. Uh, she said, not really. I was hoping for, you know, privately, I'm thinking I was hoping for some better news. Maybe there's somebody out there she's met. No, not really. And then I said, I'm glad I said it, but I've said, I said what you shouldn't say. So I include these little tips. Pastor Jack's helpful, handy tips. <laughs> so you don't have to do what I do, okay? I said, well, you're not going to meet anybody just standing around. Ooh. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> and uh, she, said, um, she said, Dad, um, I'm involved in my church. Uh, she had a, has a great career. She said, I'm... I'm working hard in my career. I've got a great community of friends around me. I'm involved in my community. If there's something more that I need to do to meet the Christian man I want to meet, then God will show me. Wow. And then she said something even better than that. She said, I want to, I want to get married. God knows I want to find a Christian husband, get married. But if it's God's will for me to be single, I don't want it. But I'm okay with that. That's when I stopped worrying. That's the prayer of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. And it's only when we get to that place that there's joy, real joy. And then about eight months later, she met fabulous Nate. We love him. Free Church loves him. And the rest, as they say. I don't know what God's plan is for you. I still seek it out myself. Maybe it's to take on an assignment 
like Alicia D'Olimpio was so proud of her, teaching in Haiti, one of the worst places in the world. This little girl who grew up at Free Church, and now she's a teacher in Haiti, and this church is supporting her. Wow, what an assignment this heroic young woman has taken on. I'm sure she wouldn't say that, but I think she is. And maybe that's not it. Probably for most of us, it's not very heroic. But you know, Jesus said it doesn't have to be heroic. It's ordinary stuff. It's every day when we become aware of Christ in our world. And we have 110 hours, 168 hours a week. You take out what we need to sleep, gives us about 120. You take out 10 working in the church, which is a lot. Don't do that much work in the church. Then you still got 110 hours. And that's where the real ministry happens. That's where the fun starts. Every day, when you say, Lord, here I am. Help me be aware of you in everything today. And then you do your best to try to hear him and see him in situations. That's when the fun happens. That's when the joy happens. I don't know where you are. Maybe you have an announcement to make this Christmas. That would be exciting. Or maybe you just have an assignment that you're struggling with and wrestling with and wondering about God's will. Keep seeking. Or maybe you have come to that place of acceptance. And you found joy in it. Wherever you are, that's very song. Amen. Merry Christmas. Amen.